Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You're listening to Good Grief, a podcast about grief and how we develop, learn, and form meaningful traditions around it. Hello there. It's been a while, as usual. I like to leave good gaps in between these things. I hope you're all having a lovely spring. So far, the weather has been miserable. I'm straight onto the weather. Let's not do that. Let's get straight into the podcast. So this podcast was recorded in early May 2023 with Emma Spearing who is an actor and writer based in Cambridgeshire. Emma has lived in various places across the UK, as well as travelling for a few years in Asia, but she's originally from Essex. She wanted me specifically to tell you that she hasn't just moved from Essex to Cambridgeshire. She has had an exciting and varied life. I met Emma, purely coincidentally, whilst working on a shoot in Cambridge. Um... Well, actually, it was my good friend and photographer extraordinaire, Neil Hepworth, that met her and talked about this podcast with her, which was very lovely of him. And by the way, if you need any photography, do contact Neil Hepworth. Uh, Google that. You should go straight to him for all your photography needs. While Neil was talking to her, she then had the opportunity to talk about her experience of loss. Um, And then we obviously had a conversation as well. Now, Emma lost her identical twin sister, Charlie, to cancer nine years ago. And in this podcast, she talked about her unique experience of losing someone that is essentially a part of you, kind of a mirror image, and literally a soulmate in the sense of someone that's walking with you all through life, and someone she's felt inseparable from for most of her life. Now, I was really struck by how I'd never considered how close a bond twins would have, especially identical twins. Um, And I don't want to spoil everything we talk about, um, but what Emma said was really quite profound and eye-opening. She covers what it was like growing up as a twin and how different milestones affected them and how they were able to support each other through various different trials and tribulations. Importantly, she talks about what it was like to care for her at the end and how she processed and continues to process the loss of her. She also addresses the thing that I keep on bringing up about building tradition and experiences around grief and not having it as a taboo subject. The conversation gets quite emotional when we talk about her then 18-month-old daughter saying goodbye to her mother. 
Since Charlie's death, Emma has written a play about her experience of the loss of her sister called Hole, as in W-H-O-L-E, which she has toured in the past and I believe will be touring again. And she talks about it in the podcast, the purpose of which, much like this podcast, is to help those that are grieving. And actually what kind of brought us together in the first place. The episode ends um, not with my usual wrap-up and thoughts about the conversation, but a song beautifully written and sung by Charlie herself. Quite strangely, when we recorded the podcast, and during my intro ramble, when, which I usually edit out, we discovered that both of us had travelled in India, and what was quite freaky about that is that we'd stayed in the very same guest house in Bagsu, called, I think, Sky Pie. Or pie in the sky. Pretty sure it was sky pie. And we might have even stayed there at the same time. Or previous guest, Theo, may have also been there at the same time. We're not sure. But anyway, it was our first discovery of Banoffee pie for both of us. And um, clearly a transformative experience. Um, so that's where this conversation begins. Kind of half discovering where we'd been in the world and p- potentially at the same time. I think after two or three days, I was basically beside myself of why I'd chosen to, to be there. So I was writing an email, went to an internet cafe because they yeah. used to exist. Yeah, they um, were good places, they weren't were. they? <laughs> so it was writing an email back to someone at home who I knew, knew had done India and was like, yeah. oh my God, I'm so miserable. I basically looked, clearly looked so upset that these two German guys came over and were like, are you okay? <laughs> and I burst into tears. <laughs> Why am I here? Um, and they, so they wrote, uh, th- so they pulled out the Lonely Planet and was like, well, where do you want to go? And I was like, I don't know. <laughs> and they were like, these are some really good places. Oh, and man. then And then they were like, right, so, and I picked to go to Dharamsala. Um, wow. Via, via Amritsar. But um, w- yeah, bought a ticket at the train station. Um, stopped off at Amritsar and then carried on and then got a bus, I think, from Amritsar to to McLeod Gange. McLeod Gange was McLeod like Gange, which is where I bashed into Charlie. Was it? Yeah. Was it? And she was actually staying in Bagsu. Yeah, so was I. Yeah. At the Sky Pie Cafe. No way. Yeah. With the best Banoffee pie. Banoffee pie, yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. and the, the guy that owned it was a Neil, wasn't it? Like... Oh my god! I can't, that, I can't remember. All I remember is that I, I looked down at one point and I nearly got sung by a scorpion, and I was like, and he quickly came over with a glass to catch it because it's actually quite valuable. Oh really? To collect the the venom. Oh yeah. wow! I know. This is freaky. That is quite crazy. So I met lifelong friends there. Me like too. we went travelling. From I there. still know some of those people that I met. So I actually stayed just above there. In, and we called it the Happy Hippie Healing House. But you, it literally was a, two terraces up uh-huh. from there. And there was a guy that just played a guitar. A beautiful Dutch guy played a guitar. And I just like, we just sang and played guitar. And that's that's what we did. And we all gathered there. And I still know him. And he's my son's godfather. And then there was this crazy Spanish artist who invited me to Glastonbury a few years ago. And now I go every year. With him? No, with oh. her. Yeah, Carmen. Carmen. And um, yeah, I met her oh. there. And yeah, so some of my like dearest people that I know yeah. from that time. 
So we 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 all met and we'd had a party when we left because wow. we were all. Then we decided to go because I didn't know anyone and we all decided yeah. to go travelling. So we went up to Lay. Yeah. Um, from there, um, <laughs> I nearly did that, but it was dangerous when I was there. So they it was dangerous no. when I was there. It was yeah, they were terrifying. Like, no, no, don't go. Please don't go, madam. And I was like, oh no, but I really want to go. And they were like, don't go. <laughs> <laughs> That's weird. Yeah. yeah so That's one crazy. of my friends, Theo, like I still he does he's done one of the podcasts with me. Really? Yeah. Um, That's crazy. And I met him at um, Sky Pie. There was loads of what it was called. really, um, really interesting, influential people that like are influential in my life, but also, so it's just so interesting because basically, so Charlie was there, my sister, and so that's why I went there to visit her. And then she did a Vipassana, and she met this guy called Rupert, who who was living in this Spanish community. Um, called Beneficio, which is like this TV community in the south of Spain, and that's where she decided to go um, to to live, and that's where she lived for the rest of her life. Wow! And had two kids there. Yeah. Wow. And so that's and that's sort of the journey that I sort of I guess have gone on with her has you know that's been a really big thing, and all that all that sort of alternative scene mm-hmm. has been a really massive sort of dilemma actually for me now actually because they were very sort of anti you would know this but it was sort of like it was very anti um conventional stuff and very yeah very open to everything that wasn't necessarily hospitals or or treatment for things everyone wanted to treat it themselves with herbs and stuff like that Mm. and that was that all came from there that source Mm. and um yeah so can you tell me, yeah, tell me what happened? Yeah, so, well, it's quite, it's quite a long, it's quite a long, complicated story. I mean, they all aren't, aren't they? But um, I'm actually an identical twin. So mm-hmm. Charlie was my identical twin sister. And she, yeah, well, basically she got cancer and she tried to treat it alternatively. Um, I mean, that, that's not quite the full story because she, she sort of, she tried to treat it alternatively for the first sort of few months um, and she was in Spain and I was going, I was just going crazy because I was just like, I just really need her to speak to somebody because the thing is like, we always used to say this about Charlie, but you know, she was very like, um, in India, they always say, you know, shanti, shanti, like take mm-hmm. it slow, take it slow. She was really slow. Yet you couldn't push her. You couldn't, you couldn't rush her. And what happened was that, because she was in Spain and there was a bit of a language barrier, even though she's, she spoke really good Spanish, they basically said over the phone, you've got cancer, you need to come in tomorrow and you need to bring an overnight bag. And she just freaked out. So she just, she just didn't. She was like, I, she just stopped. And she actually ran up the mountain to um, stay with her friends this guy that she met in India now runs like a, a retreat centre in Spain. So she went up there and they, yeah, and they were just like, right, we're going to Google it. We're going we're gonna to find out what the cures are for cancer and we're, gonna, we're just going to treat you. Um, and, I mean, the thing is that I have um, – very conflicting feelings about everything because I was 
really open to all of that as well. I, I mean, but, um, but I wasn't sort of dogmatic in that. I wasn't like you. You know, I'm a bit like. I think you just need to talk to somebody and see how bad it is, and come back. But she just didn't want to. Um, and and I also have to say that I absolutely love those people that that were with her and supported her because they actually ended up coming and living with me for so she came and live live with me in the end for like eight nine months and um and two people from that community would come over every week to help me care for her because I needed so much help um because yeah anyway yeah so she treated alternatively and then and then she did come back but she went on a route through she went to see John of God in Brazil she went to like you know all these different healers all these different you know sort of psychics all all this work um she you know cut sugar out completely from her diet she she did herbs she did everything everything that you can google that's a cure for cancer she did it fully she also had an 18 month old little girl at the time and um and a 12 year old 11 year old son at the time as well so yeah it was just so full on and I was actually I'd actually finally saved enough money to go to drama school so I was like on my like completing my sort of yeah lifelong sort of dream really my son had got old enough to to walk himself to school and I was like I can I can go and I got in and then I saved two years to go so there was a there's a conflict there's a conflict there as well because she didn't really want to interrupt what I was doing because she because I obviously I used to work in a hospital actually not obviously you don't actually know that about me I used to be a physio and um she was always like why are you a physio why are you working in a hospital it's not you you shouldn't be doing that and I I sort of got stuck in it because I was a single parent and I just didn't have a way out um because you're just stuck, you know, if you don't have enough money to to pay the rent, you, you don't have any freedom to train as something else or, mm. or or do something like that. So um anyway, this is a really long rambling um <laughs> description of actually what happened. But um Well it's, it's, yeah. it's, that's the nature of things. Things <clears throat> we will ramble and that'll be absolutely yeah. fine. I'm really interested kind of with the alternative therapist that thing, mm. how you feel in hindsight about that because we're here talking about this so it wasn't successful yeah is how I don't want to put words in your mouth so can you describe how you feel assessing that I think I feel massively conflicted I think is probably the the best way that I can describe that because so so by the time so the thing is she then she when she did come back to this country briefly um after going to Brazil she had a lot of pain and and stuff like that um and she actually ended up having um yeah she she ended up sort of having um sort of this she was hemorrhaging basically and they and she was staying with my parents in Suffolk and she had to go to hospital and they couldn't stop the bleeding and they basically said we've got to do radiotherapy and we've and in order for that to work we have to give you some chemotherapy as well um you know for it to be most successful and so she did end up having that because she actually she couldn't get out of hospital but I remember at the time she said to me I went up there and it was our it's been our 37th birthday and 
she just looked at me and she was like, I bet you're really happy that I'm here, that I'm stuck here, that I'm I'm having to have treatment. And I was like, no, I'm, I'm not at all. I just wanted you to see a doctor. Um, and she was just on these websites. There's this guy. I can't, I can't find it now. I've tried to find it because I, I actually said that, you know, if I... If she died, I said this to my partner, I was like, if she dies because she's read this guy's stuff and he's such a, a fraud, he's in, in America, I will track him, I will hunt him down. Um, because the thing is that there's no, it's like conspiracy theories. It's like, it, it's, it's, it's a weird thing. It's almost like everything that isn't mainstream becomes acceptable even if it doesn't make any sense and there's no logic and there's no science behind it. It's like, because it's not mainstream, people just sort of pass it on. It's almost like... Flat earthers. Yeah, but it's almost like people are saying, you know, try this, this worked for... It's all anecdotal or it doesn't have any science behind it. But because it's been told from another person within that community, within that sort of alternative tribe, it's not even questioned. Mm. No one actually really interrogates it. And, and that, and that's, that's what I find really interesting now is that it is very tribal and because you don't want to be kicked out or not belong to that group of people, you go along with it and believe it and you, you wouldn't really even question it. Do do, do you know what I mean? It's, Mm. yeah, I mean, it's so relevant today with everything that's going on with, you know, with like vaccines and stuff like that. Um, And it's, it's exactly the same sort of concept. Did you hunt him down? No, I can't find him on the internet now. Oh, really? But he was saying things like, so this is the issue, yeah? He said, this is what she read. He said, if you um, have chemotherapy or radiotherapy, before you try these options, including like this machine that cleans your blood or whatever, that he could give you the directions of how to make it or whatever, um, then... um, you it's really unlikely well you it's it's less likely to work but but my but my cures will absolutely 100% work should be a big you know nothing is 100% like let's Mm -hmm. put that so anyone that says that is it's talking out their ass but um yeah but he was just like so if you do that before you try these things then um then that they're less likely to work. So she was like, right, well, I have to give it 100% because I want to be alive for my kids. So I have to not have chemotherapy and radiotherapy. I have to try these no sugars, you know, all of these different things first because he says that if I do it afterwards, it's less likely to work. So that's, that, that's, that's the issue. Considering she's just Googled this guy, I assume, she's mm. not heard of him before. What do you think, like gave her the faith that this guy was right because there's this really big movement um about um and it's sort of americanized really about big pharma uh. and so anybody that's going says anything about big pharma and that they're evil and they're trying to take all your money and they're just trying to get you on drugs and the drugs don't actually work like is literally like people start to believe whatever they say just because they're on the same side about drugs companies, mm-hmm. regardless of what the evidence is about what they're saying. I mean, that's really interesting because that, 
that's partly true, isn't it? Like big pharma are after your money, yeah, and they and they do want to push certain drugs on you because that's what they're manufacturing. But yeah. um, they soon would lose money if it, the drugs if weren't working. Work. Yeah, um, it's that's that's taking that that kind of conspiracy that, that step too far. So like this, it's based on some kind of truth, and then and then yeah. going going over the precipice and being like, well, we must reject all of big pharma. That's a, a like a good lesson for most. Uh, not conspiracies, but most political thought, I guess. Like, if oh well, the the this thing is evil, we must avoid it. Yeah. In, and actually, there's probably some nuance there. Yeah, that, that nuance. It, Where's the nuance? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I don't know. It it's so challenging, and I don't have any answers. But I just know that if anyone says that they can 100 percent cure you, they're probably lying. Mm. <laughs> you know, um, when um. When we first spoke about doing this, um, you mentioned that, um, I mean, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, but mm. you, you talked about the importance, uh, why, why it would be different to be grieving the loss of a, of, a, of a twin, an identical twin. Obviously, all grief is upsetting, um, but it, it, you wanted to communicate that there was something unique about, about being part of a twin and losing losing that twin could you talk to me because we didn't really talk much more about that we didn't did we um I think so I mean so it's nine years ago since Charlie died and I've been on a real journey with that Mm. um but when she died I guess you know I just I lost my sense of of who I was because I have always been a part of a pair from literally the breaking of the egg (laughs) you know literally I have always been with another being another energy I that's that's how I define myself I've never had a time where I wasn't part of that pair whereas you know even if you've got a sibling that's older or younger that they're not going through the same milestones as you like so so they often say about twins so I, I did lots of research actually after after I lost her just to try to understand things and you know there's like some people say that twins don't even some twins don't even develop their own egos they will fuse with each other Mm. um you don't um go through the milestone of separation that most children have with them with their parent where they would look at their caregiver and go oh you are separate to me you don't do that with a twin because um because that because they never they're always at the exactly same point as you so basically your primary relationship is not with a caregiver it's with your twin mm. so you then don't separate yourself from them and then if you think about how people refer to twins they go oh the twins did this the twins did that you know oh when the twins you know all the stories are you know are, are held in in a central narrative of 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 a, of a partnership and of a pair and some some people will make sure that they deliberately say their twins names separately which is really helpful I think because it gives a sense of identity that is separate from the unit um but yeah you you're just you're just part of a shared history shared stories everything is 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 in that partnership and so when it's not there who are you who are you without your 
without your mirror, without mm. your person that you constantly go to for reassurance or a kick up the arse or whatever whatever it is. You know, mm. in our relationship, you know, I think people Id- idolise sort of twin relationships. They can be really difficult. Like, I'd say Charlie was my biggest critic, but I could always phone her and Skype, like Skype, it was Skype at the time, not Zoom. And, um, <laughs> and, um, and just be like, this is what's going on. And she'll be like, oh, get over it. Or, you know, oh, well, you know, tell them to fuck off or, you know, whatever. She would, she's, she's the person that would, that I would go to, that I would get that. Like, there's no, there's sort of, there's no boundary. So there's no, in a way, it, it, it sort of, it didn't prepare me for life outside of a twinship because, um, because you, you, I, all my relationships, I expect to be that close. Like I don't have very good boundaries, actually. And and one of the things about twins as well is that they'll try and twin with other people. So, um, just because that's what my natural state is, mm. is to share everything. <laughs> you know, like I don't really hold anything back. Um, um, I'm very comfortable with that, but I recognise that can probably be uncomfortable for some people. But actually, some of my best friends are, are twins. Oh, really? Yeah. A common existence in in that sense. Yeah, so we, like we don't have commonality. We don't have a we 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 don't have we don't we we don't have to censor ourselves. You know, yeah. like you would with a normal person. So was it difficult when? So you're living your life together, obviously, and mm. then. Um, at some point your your roads had diverge. Yeah. Was it like school or university or something? And, and did did that feel, was that difficult to deal with? Yeah, I remember. So um, my mum um, basically said that the teachers, no, she said, yeah, she said that the teachers at our first school, we were in the same class. And they said that... Um, Charlie was having to look after me too much because I, I was very highly anxious and and um, they just said that she wasn't able to have a school experience because she was constantly making sure that I was okay. So they separated us. And that was, I just remember crying my eyes out. Well, I could, and I could hear Charlie crying as well. And we were, I don't think we were told in a particularly, you know, helpful way. Um and then yeah, and then they moved her into a different class, and I stayed in the in the class. And to start with, actually, she really struggled because because what people didn't understand was that that was her role. Like she wanted to look after me. Mm. That was that was our relationship. It's really complicated. Like adults looking in and just thinking they understand this very complicated, nuanced relationship, and they 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 didn't they didn't understand it. Um, but yeah, that was really that that was so hard. So they they did they did separate us, um, and then and then really what happened? We, we the thing is we sort of used each other as a little bit of a springboard in our, in our lives. And so when Charlie isn't here anymore, I've lost my drive. I've lost my springboard. So for instance, when I went to Asia, I went to Thailand. She had read this book called The Celestine Prophecy. Do you remember? Do you ever remember that book? No. Oh, anyway, it was sort of about following the signs and all the signs suggested that she should go to teach English in Poland. So she went to Poland. <laughs> I went to Thailand. She had an awful time. And I was in Thailand and I went, come to Thailand, it's amazing. So she came to Thailand. 
she looked so tired and I was like I've just been to the island you go to the islands I'm going to go to Laos came back to um bash bash my elbow came back to meet her in Bangkok and then she was like I've met I've met this amazing woman that is like living in caves with holy men I'm going to India and I was like what you're crazy and then she went to India and then that's how I ended up going to India so we sort of we just pulled each other Mm -hmm. you see um and and that that's always been that's always been how we move through the world and I realized for instance that you know when I took my son out of school to take him traveling for six months when he was six I in my head when I'm going to Australia so that I can find out all the really good places and all the really good communities that I can tell Charlie about them so that she can then go there and that, that's how I live my life. That's how I live my life. So without that, I've just had to go. I I just don't know how to move forwards. You do the way you've talked about everything here is obviously it's a profound relationship as well as mm. a profound loss. And obviously, it, I, I also don't want to belittle anybody anybody else's grief by talking like this because obviously losing anybody that you love is really hard yeah but this kind of feels like you're losing a part of you the way you're describing it yeah how how did that grief manifest you know within well how has it manifested in the last nine years not not only immediately but over the over the time she's been gone um i would say that i think i actually think I think grieving happens when you, it starts when you get told. Like, for me, the grieving started when I, she told me she had cancer and that she wasn't coming back to this country. I just had this feeling, like, that that it was going to be really bad. And... And then, you know, and then, you know, they did say that they'd, that they'd cured it you see and with the chemotherapy and the radiotherapy they said that that they'd cured it um to start with and I went oh my god I was wrong oh thank fuck for that I was wrong and then she started to say I've got this pain in my leg and I was like that doesn't sound okay you know that doesn't sound okay like you're not sleeping and she was in Spain and she was with her little girl and she was like no I, I don't want to see anyone about it I think it's because I had radiotherapy so she blamed the radiotherapy for it and I was just you know yeah I was sort of being a bit of a physio about it and going well you know what what is it on the pain scale and you said it was this and so from I then started to really worry about it and anyway you know actually through NHS and stuff like that. I'm going off on one again. But um, they they then missed that it had come back. And so by the time she actually got to a hospital where we went for a second opinion, because I was like, I can't believe that there isn't anything on an MRI scan. Um, they said, actually, yeah, they, we've missed it. It's in the lymph node and it's touching her nerve and that's why you've got leg pain. And um, And there's nothing we can do. That's literally what they said. There's nothing we can do. And she was um, 37. So at that point in that meeting with that doctor, who was amazing in in speaking us through it, but my partner was in there, I was in there, Charlie was in there. 
And she just said, you know, what do you what do you understand by swollen lymph node? And what do you understand by this? It was really now I now I work with doctors in Breaking Bad News, mm. and I understand that how that process and yeah and then when she said the word palliative that's when the grief hit me but in a really interesting way because I would say that I'm not a very good person at coping I went into such focus I went out and bought a video camera (laughs) like we we I phoned I phoned my parents and I phoned my sister and I went you need to gather we need to gather you need to come to my house and you know they were they they were sort of they 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 thought that I'd been overreacting about her pain so they hadn't quite they you know I mean my little sister was just like no you need to tell me right now why we need to come you need to tell me what's happened so I put her on the phone to Charlie but because there's two of us we were like we've got this we're sorted we get and Charlie just went well I wanted to treat alternatively anyway so that's what we that's what I'm going to do so she had hope whereas I was sort of holding all the shit together um but I was grieving I was grieving by doing up until her dying in my house so she died in in the house I, we were renting a house um she'd spent sort of well, she, she'd been unconscious by that point for like 13 days. She hadn't had anything to eat or drink. Um, and I initially, and maybe this is true for lots of people, but it w- there, w- there is relief. Like, there you, you're in this limbo place of not knowing how bad it's going to get. And it was bad because she was so young and so healthy, actually. Um, she had so much pain. It was awful. She would be screaming in pain and I would be having to queue up at Boots to get morphine and they would be like, we don't have any in stock. And, you know, it was just, I was on this high alert. Like my whole system was in overdrive of adrenaline. And, you know, the night before she died, I I thought, I don't think it's going to be tonight. I think it'll be tomorrow night. Um and so, you know, my son was in the house and all the, and like three other women were in the house and they said, we'll sleep. They were sleeping in the room with her, which was just, they were so amazing. And, um, and I, we play cards, you know, in the other room. Like there was a lot of, there was a lot of, um, um, being held and joy and laughter and good stuff. But, and when she died, we prepared her body and that was really helpful in grief to, 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 to take ownership of that but then everyone left because they all went because they'd all been living with me and they all have families and they all were like okay well we're going to go back to our families now and then I was like but what do what do I do now and I had to sort the funeral out and stuff like that which is full on I don't think anyone really ever tells you about how full on those things are and because Charlie didn't want to accept that she was going to die we couldn't have any conversations about it because she was like do not put a thought in my head that I'm going to die I have to believe with a hundred percent of my body that I'm going to live otherwise I will die and so everything had to be about hope everything had to be about positivity and and 
yeah, you know. You're, so part of the reason why I started this podcast, well, the main reason I started this podcast is because of the lack of um, communication about it. The, the, having lost a few friends in my life and other loved ones, relatives and all kinds of other things, how still unprepared you can be. Did you feel at all prepared, even though you're talking about, you know, she... You you had the feeling that she wasn't going to make it through. Did you feel like you had any any kind of guidance or help from anyone or anywhere that you could use to to help you through the grief, or was it a learn learn on the job kind of basis? I think because we sort of separated ourselves from more mainstream things, I think I just felt like it didn't. It didn't include my experience. It didn't speak to me. Anything that was there didn't speak to me. So, like, there was, like, you know, a counsellor that came over, but I just couldn't, I just felt like she couldn't, she was really nice, but she couldn't relate. Like, it was just like, I've lost my twin. (laughs) I, like, I can't, I just felt like I couldn't, like, like, she couldn't, I couldn't express the magnitude to somebody and I didn't want to I just wanted I just wanted them to I just just didn't think it was possible to explain actually how much like it just didn't make any sense like everything was everything was completely fucked and my future was was like everything was sort of destroyed but it doesn't happen immediately like that like the day after she died, I think we all went out for a walk and it was beautiful. And I remember standing with my back against a tree and and just standing there. And I, I go to that tree now and I stand with my back against it. And I, I've got this photograph, actually, of me standing with my back against a tree and I look so tired. And I, it was holding me up. And But I remember as I stood there just thinking, this tree has seen so many lives come and go and it's still here. And so there's something for me about nature and connecting with nature and cycles and birdsong and all those things for me was really comforting. And the people that... I've had some really good people around me. The people that really helped were just the people that they they didn't do, they they did not fix. It's the hardest thing in the world not to try and fix someone, but you absolutely cannot fix this. It's absolutely broken there's no point no you cook and all you do by trying to fix is somehow belittle how somebody feels so one of the most powerful things was just a friend that just sat and I put her hand on my back in the small of my back that's all she did and it was just yeah it was like this knowing she just already knew she already knew where I was um and then people would say um Come, come! I'm walking the dog. Come and walk the dog with me. You know, just and that—that that was that was enough. Mm. Um, but I mean, I so I, I've never experienced what I've experienced with grief. Like I feel like I have, 
I've been to the bottom of the well and I have dug in the dirt with my hands and I know what it is to to just I don't know you can't there's this there's this wonderful statue that's got somebody sitting there with their hands on their knees with just a a gap in the in their body like a hole in their body and I'm just like yeah you just it's like there's it's like no one can be there for you like if, if I had to describe grief it's like the most individual experience is you cannot explain to anyone how you feel because it's just too immense do you learn to live with that hole or do you does that hole start disappearing no you you just learn to live with it I think my so I've started to and th- this is sort of how I guess I'm working through things which is that I started I started to write about about our relationship and things things like that basically the only thing I, I really wanted to talk about was 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 death and grief I I, I was just like I don't really want to talk about anything else like this is like so huge and we're not talking about it and it is like you know people say you, you feel like you're living in a different like on a different plane to everyone everyone's sort of getting on with their lives and you're looking at them going but I'm underwater I'm not like we are not living in the same reality at all um and and I I I can't connect and I'd think about that now when I you know when I walk around and I just you know just think you we never know who is going through that like who is going through that it's going to be there's going to be thousands and thousands of people that you walk past on the tube or, or whatever. And they are, they're also in that place and we just don't see it, you know. And we just got to have compassion for each other, actually, mm. because you just don't know what people are carrying. And, yeah, and the, the I always think that the, um, the sobbing of, of grief is, is sort of like that it will come up and it comes in waves and it will be like this deep it's like this really weird deep knowing of pain do you do have you do you know that do you know that that sob yeah yeah and we don't really show it to each other do we no no but it's it's just it's anguish isn't it but it's um Yeah, it's just it's just pure pain, but you need to get it out. That's my experience. It needs to come out. You just let it come out. You just need to let it come, and then it, eventually it will, it will stop, and then you'll be okay for a bit, you know. And then you'll need to do it again. Mm-hmm. And I feel really strongly that we should be, we should be looking at grief, and we should be having like rituals around it like we should be going and we should be screaming into the earth and allowing our sobs to fall on the ground and and just witness each other in that and allow that to come up and don't think it gets better because it doesn't fucking get better all we all we're doing is we're building new experiences around our grief that is literally what I have done and I'm walking her with me because I've turned my writing into making this piece of work which I've worked on for like six years so I'm just bringing her with me on this new journey where I talk about us and how it feels to lose her. 
that's literally what this piece of work is that I've been making. But it's just me using her to move forward again. And I, I'm aware of that. Um, but that's working for me. Can you, can you tell me a bit about the work? So it's called Whole, W-H-O-L-E. Um, and yeah, it, it is looking at what it means to lose the person that completes you. And it doesn't sugarcoat anything. So, because I, that's, I think that was where, that was where I felt unseen, is that, you know, when we watch films or whatever, sometimes things are made to look like people get better or we always want the ending that's a bit, that's, that's the happy ending. And it's like, no, it doesn't work like that. You, I'm not going to suddenly be better. I'm not better. I don't get to be better. That's okay. It's okay to not be okay. You, I, I am fine, not fixed. I am absolutely fine to not to to not be fixed. I like. I will step one foot in front of the other. And I wanted to make a piece of work that speaks to those people. That that look around them and look at all the things that they can't let go of because their person died and they've got all this you know they've still got all their stuff I've still got all Charlie's stuff in my blooming cupboard and I is some of it's like absolute tat and I can't get rid of it because when it's gone then there won't there won't be another chance to get anything back that is hers that held her or that she touched that she that that it, it still smells of her and I can't get rid of it. And I don't know how long I'm going to be dragging these boxes around for the rest of my life. You know, I've got one cupboard and it's full. Um, but I can't get rid of it. But that's okay. That's okay. That's yeah, just I mean, that's holding on to a part of her that, yeah. that, I mean, that's completely understandable. I think... I think we we'll all be the same, and there's no there's no need for you to get rid of it either. Well, apart from lack of space, I mean that. I think my partner would really really <laughs> argue with you there, actually. <laughs> so when it yeah. comes to whole, are you, you 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 just mentioned you're writing that for for other people? Oh, you've written that. Sorry, yeah. Um, for people that are grieving, yeah, and 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 I guess for lone twins as well because it's very much about. Basically, it talks. It it sort of compares this to like Batman and Robin. You know, you you're a double act. That that is what you are as a twin. And for me, she was Batman and I was Robin. So she always like she was the dominant twin. Mm -hmm. So what happens if that that if Batman dies? What do you do? What does Robin do if they? <laughs> you know, like what what's their role? Like how, how can they exist? What what is that? And so it it talks as well about I guess sort of belief systems and and yeah and 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 then it talks about grief it talks about the complexities of the and the joyousness of of being a sister as well um it is funny surprisingly <laughs> I didn't think it was I didn't think it would be but it is funny so um but yeah but it doesn't sugarcoat anything like it's no I just wondered whether, because like the the point of this podcast series is is to open up conversation about grief. Yeah. Um, the 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 big thing for me, upon experiencing grief again, was 
that the unpreparedness and I, I, I I'm not sure whether it's uh, endemic to to the UK or or similar countries to the UK, but there are no rituals left. Yeah. Whereas um, the people I've spoken to, there are vibrant traditions around grief in in other countries and in other cultures. Um, whereas here, it's a very keep at arm's length thing. So when you experience it, not only are you unprepared yourself, you're kind of unprepared um, f- for dealing with other people um, and knowing what to do. And like what, what you talked about was absolutely spot on, obviously. But that the, the thing that I've really learned is just being with people. And, yeah. and that's all you can do because you can't make it better. Yeah. Um, but we fall on platitudes of like, well, if you need anything, just let me know. Yeah. And that's super not helpful because you don't tend to reach out when you're in, in, in the place of grief. Um, if, you could, if you could change something around the way we deal with grief in this country, or not just one thing, it's not like a mm. one thing, a one answer question, but what, what would you change about the way we deal with it as a, as a society? I would, um, I would make it, um, I would take away the taboo of speaking about it Mm. because what happens is you can start to speak about it. I think it's really important to speak about it. Like because otherwise you do something else you you like you'll numb it in some way you'll like drink too much or you you know and I'm not saying that I don't do all those things as well but speaking about it is and 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 for people not to bristle when you speak about it or for people not to feel like they have to go oh I'm so sorry you know because it just feels cringy and I'm just like no no I just want to say her name I want to tell you a story about her. I want, for instance, if I see twins in a buggy, like this is a full-on thing, yeah? See twins in a buggy, what do I say to them? Do I say to the mum, oh, I, I, I'm a twin? Because I did say that once. And she went, oh, where's your twin now? And I went, she died. And then she was like, oh. you know, <laughs> it was so bad. It was so awkward. And I was just thinking, okay, I better not say that again. I don't think that's a good thing to say to a twin mom. Um, <laughs> but but I want to be able to say her name. Like there's 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 some lovely memes out there, aren't there? Which is like, um, you know, like by not saying that person's name, you're not protecting them from grieving their loss. Their, their lost loved one they're already thinking about them pretty much all the time anyway you're just reminding them that they existed and that you remember that they existed and that's that even if they cry that's okay like that that is so so precious and so special and I just want I would like to be able to talk about Charlie and people not just um try and back away from the conversation because they're uncomfortable I I just feel like we should be able to talk about our, our loved ones because they shape us they shape our future they shape everything about us why why do they die and then suddenly we can't talk about them isn't that insane what i don't understand is this this like real kind of avoidance like oh shit that's happened i'm not even going to talk to that person like some people will do that they'll like although i've heard that that person's mother has died or whatever I'll just stay out of their way for the next month or whatever and, and hope that that, that, <laughs> yeah. that that blows over. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, 
you've obviously written and thought about this a lot. Yeah. Do you think there's there's a there's a root cause to 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 this avoidance? Oh, a root cause to the avoidance. I just think it's fear and it's just discomfort. It's just we we as human beings, I think we just avoid things that are uncomfortable, and because it's sort of unpredictable what somebody might do with that, and maybe we don't have the time to to you know to deal with it or to deal with them or to cope with somebody else I don't know maybe I don't know maybe we're all just too busy or we're too rushed or it's just too uncomfortable and we just don't we just don't want to be in that situation where that person cries on us or something Mm. we just avoid it but but you know even though I know better I still find it really really hard to know how to reach out to somebody and I make myself do it and I really think have to think about it because I'm like, this is bullshit, Emma. You know how difficult this is. You know, you know how it feels to be on the other end of it. So do something. Mm. And, and you know, I've got a friend that goes, oh, I was terrible. I was terrible when your sister died. And I was like, no, you weren't. You showed up with vegetables from your garden in a, in a plastic bag and went, I'm sorry, I didn't know what to do. And I was like, that was wonderful. Mm. That was it. That's all I, you know, it was just, it was lovely. It was, um. It's so easy, isn't it? Do you do you find that you avoid those situations as well? As, as I was saying it, I was like, I think I've done this. As, mm. I, as I was like, I, I I'd like to think I wouldn't do it now mm. uh, over the last I don't know couple of years or whatever. But I think I have done it in the past. So Gone, what, what do you? Oh shit! I'll avoid that person for a while. Yeah. So what do you do? What's your What do you do if you know somebody's lost somebody now? Yeah. Now it's now I know it's just it's time to be with them. Okay. And it is just be with them. Yeah. I've sorry just to go back what you just said about the person that turned up with the vegetables. Yeah. I, th- I think that's like perfect, like yeah. so perfect, because th- by saying that, hopefully anyone listening is given permission to to do that to yeah. to be like I have no clue what I'm doing here and that's absolutely fine because that's more real than a platitude of um I'm sorry for your loss um do you want to uh contact me if you need anything because you're not going to as I've said um but yeah I in the past I've definitely definitely avoided it and now I'm in a place of like I it's almost like um because I'm talking about it so much and there's been such a a, a change in my attitude towards it mm. because I feel it's like th- th- one of the most important things to talk about. Yeah. For many reasons, through loss and not knowing how to deal with other people that are experiencing loss, but also I think I'm preparing myself for loss as well, like my... Mum won't live forever, for example. Um, you know, other close people to me may die at some point. Yeah. And, you know, I want to be prepared for that rather than just being like, oh, I'll just blindly walk into that when it happens. Now, I say that with a pinch of salt because obviously nothing will prepare me for the loss of my mother, for example. Um, that will be a terrible time. No, it's not going to be like, well, I'm prepared. Um, <laughs> so this is going to be a, a walk in the park. I just want to be able to kind of know what I'm going through is appropriate or like that I'm not kind of like nobody else has felt like this or, Mm. you know, I'm experienced, like no one knows how to deal with me. I think 
I will be able to communicate what I need better now. And so when I experience other people that are going through that, I know what to do and how to step up and not shy away. Yeah. I just want to um, go back just a little bit. Yeah. Because you mentioned something in passing. You were talking about the preparation of mm. Charlie's death. And you mentioned you got a camcorder mm. and then you didn't tell me why. Yeah, because I just, I just suddenly, um, well, I was like, I just need to record all these moments. I just need to, I just need to have footage. Um, and actually, you know, the ridiculous thing is that camcorder is not the best thing to, <laughs> the files are really big and I, <laughs> you know, my computer is full and again, it's like, you know, I've I've now got all these. Yeah, every computer that I own, I like. I I, you know, have to get somebody to back it all up in case I lose the footage. And then yeah, my my everything's full. And you know, anyway, um, no, it would have been better if I just used her iPad. <laughs> <laughs> it just would have been so much better. And I do have a little bit on her iPad, but yeah, the camcorder files are just so big. So that that's why I. But there'll be a certain that. quality of. Of. If you can watch them, yeah. If you can, if you can, which I still, you know, I haven't sorted. I'm so untechy. It's like it's a little bit of an issue. And then I think I've got copies of them. Anyway, I filled my last computer up with them, and then I got them onto an external drive because my partner was like, "Emma, your computer's full because you've got all these videos. So get them off." So I took them. I didn't take them off. That's the thing. I put them on the external <laughs> drive and they were so scared or something happened to the external drive that I still got them on the computer. So my computer is sort of still full. So I have to keep deleting things. And yeah, anyway, it's, it's just a nightmare. Were they, were they candid moments? Were you like, did you have the camcorder with you all the time and you'd be like, okay, let's record this? Or was it, it was set up and you would just go about your day and stuff would get captured? What, how oh. did you approach it? Yeah, well, a little bit, a little bit of both. I think, I don't know, it was just, I guess I was in this sort of weird world. But I, when I, in fact, yeah, I don't know when my, when my parents must have come at one point and um, we, everyone just must have been so fed up with me sticking this thing in their face, <laughs> which I did. Um, and now, you know, I'm the only one that can watch that really because I don't think anyone else in my family can watch can watch it. I don't think they could watch it. They they haven't done the same process of grieving as as I as I have done actually. So I've got like clips of us uh, as a family. We sort of love Fleetwood Mac, and I think we put Fleetwood Mac on, and and um, we put loads of songs on actually. And Charlie was dancing, and she had so much pain in her leg, but she was dancing. And so I've got us dancing, and then I've got her dancing with my mum. And this is when my mum, I think she's just sort of found out. She's just holding her. And it's so beautiful. And um, But it's, I can't share it with anybody because they, it would be too much for them. But I've got it. And one day I'll show it to her daughter. I think that's it. I'm the holder of all of these things. That's how I feel. Mm. Yeah. Are you tempted to kind of, because it sounds beautiful, mm. are you tempted to 
kind of edit some stuff together and, and not necessarily for your family yeah. but for I don't have the skill or, or, right. or the, the memory or the, the space on right. my computer <laughs> I literally can't I, I think I wanted to about eight years ago and uh and I just haven't yeah I haven't haven't I just haven't been able to upload them onto anything absolutely useless but I'm talking to the right person I didn't even realize that it's all right we'll 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 debrief after <laughs> um was there a point when you were making these videos that you felt you needed to stop making them it's really interesting because we set up a um, private Facebook page um, and invited like all Charlie's friends because they were mostly in Spain to be part of it. We called it because she called herself Rada. So it was called the Wonderful World of Rada. And um, we would post updates on there and videos and photographs and stuff. And I think... I realised that for some people it was really quite disturbing probably seeing how ill she was getting because she had to take steroids and it really can affect your face shape mm. and stuff and she couldn't move out of the bed in the end and stuff like that and yeah I I I, I didn't stop taking pictures and photos and some of that I definitely felt, um, I felt, how did I feel? I felt like I really had to challenge myself as to why. Because I've got a photo, I've still got it on my phone, of, of her lying in bed and her daughter coming to say goodbye to her, being held by her dad. And she just puts her hand on her heart and yeah so she must have been 18 months old and she will have no memory and I took photographs of that moment which seems really inappropriate but I needed to and I don't really know why but I needed to almost like because I know grief can really affect your memory as well it's almost like documenting for me what what's happened um and and also how bad it was because then I can look at it and go it's fucking awful that was awful um yeah I think taking photos is obviously sorry <laughs> quite a moving story so that happens um Photos are always about remembering something, right? Yeah. So, and I think mm. you're obviously very aware that there's a an important thing happening, and I guess it's a gut instinct to take a photo. Yeah. And actually, to have to have that even though it's probably not something you fondly look back at or, or scroll through, I think that's a really important thing for her daughter to have. Yeah. Did she understand? Um, she, we took her out afterwards and we just went to, well, 
I couldn't leave the house for long because I, I was on, I was doing the medication at that point. So and she was on so many different things and. Oh no, I wasn't. That's wrong, actually, because she was on the syringe driver by that time, so I wasn't. We took the Tifa out, and she. We went to Starbucks, and um, she said um, that we she wanted to buy some crisps because she was going to say to Mummy, "Mummy, eat these. Mummy, eat these." Because Mummy needs to eat, and she's going to say, "Wake up, Mummy! Wake up, Mummy!" Yeah, and that was hard. And we, yeah, me and um, Charlie's dearest friends were, were there and we just, we just, yeah, just had tears. Just, <laughs> we were saying, we were just trying to explain to her that we were just like, we're not going to, mummy's, mummy's not going to wake, mummy's not going to wake up. Oh my God, it was so hard. Yeah. But, you know, the, then when Charlie did die and that day um, we prepared a body and then we got the guys to come and take her body away. And I didn't want her little girl to be in the room for right or for wrong um, when that process was happening because it felt like too much to hold. Um and she arrived half an hour afterwards and um, everyone had left apart from the, the women that were helping me, uh, her friends. And Latifa just ran into her, the room and she just looked around and she went, oh, mummy, not here. And then she just wanted to play, you know, she wanted to play, um, she wanted me to paint her nails, and brush her hair and play dress up. So that is literally what I did. That's what I did. And because that is what you have to do. Mm. You know, it's there was there was no there's no option necessarily. I didn't feel like there was an option to crumble. I was like, Yep, now we're playing handbags and putting makeup on. And I've just helped to prepare my, my twin sister's body and but I have to be here now as this auntie person. And yeah. And I felt like that during the funeral as well, that I couldn't lose it because the kids were there. And I didn't lose it. And I I just held a tree. <laughs> um, trees are really, <laughs> trees are my friend. <laughs> um because I didn't want them to have a memory that was distressing about her funeral. And if I'd lost it, then that's what they might have remembered. And I just didn't want, I just didn't want to give that to them. I, I just couldn't do that. So I just had to hold it together.
So, so, but well, what I would like to do is, I would like to. I don't know if you do this as a thing, but I would like to think about like what I, what knowledge I would impart to people. Like, so for instance, because of the way that Charlie was, we didn't do. She, she, I didn't know what her plan, what what she wanted to do with her body. And so there was one moment in, in, in her bedroom and I, and I just thought, I've just got to get it out and I've got to say it because I don't, I don't know what she wants. And I said, I know you don't want to have a conversation about this. You don't have to think about it, but I'm just going to just say this. Do you want black or colour? And she went, colour. Do you want people to sing or do you want people to be quiet? They sing and they better sing really well because she was she ran a choir like a gorilla choir that's what she did and then um you know and and that's how I got all the information out about do you want to be buried or cremated buried I thought she would want to be cremated (laughs) I mean for god's sake and then I was like okay and this felt really wrong as well but I was like I've looked around some natural burial sites there's one near mum and dad in in Suffolk um, but it's got the trees are all in a line, and I don't, I, di- I didn't like it. Or there's one in Epping Forest, and we used to ride in Epping Forest, and but it, you can hear the motorway. And she went, Epping Forest, yeah. and that and that is how I did it. But that is such a gift to give somebody. Just let them know what you want. Take that away, and then what we found was she'd written this song. Like when she thought she was free from cancer, this song just came to her and she she wrote songs and it flowed out of her. And we didn't know really what, what, what she wanted for the funeral, but we played the song and the song told us everything that we needed to do for the ceremony. But without us, even though I'd heard it loads, I hadn't realised what was in it. And we followed it like a ritual. And that really helped. Because we felt like we were doing what she wanted us to do. Won't you lay me down When you lay me down Under a pomegranate tree And when you sit down at my toes or my crown May it remind you of me When it is time for me to part Will you lie at my heart A golden locket with all of the words Of people I love upon it And when it is time for me to rest Won't you lie at my breast A pink rose which smells of sweetness and tea that'll wither away with me when you lay me down won't you lay me down under a pomegranate tree and when you sit down at my toes or my crown may it remind you of me when it is time for me to go won't you plant at my crown iris of purple iris of white to go with my cotton gown and when 
and it's the hour for me to go home. Won't you sing me a song from your heart with beautiful words and inglorious parts to return me back to my home? Won't you lay me down when you lay me down under a pomegranate tree? And when you sit down at my toes or my crown, may it remind you of me. And when you know that I must go, will you plant under my hand a small gift from you like a button or jewel? With all of your loving inside And when it is dusk and things fading to rust And the memories slipping away Will you go to my tree And sit silently And gently remember my name Won't you lay me down When you lay me down Under a pomegranate tree And when you sit down At my toes or my crown May it remind you of me May it remind you of me Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.